Good evening, welcome. Buzzing. No more buzzing. Good evening and welcome. Hope you're well this evening. Not much new and exciting going on in the world these days, is there? So, it's a good place from which to study the tenets of the different philosophical and unphilosophical traditions. Okay. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omajushri, please accomplish this. Okay, so uh, we didn't finish completely last week's material. I think that was the first time that's ever happened in the 20 years. <laughs> I think it was page 75, a summary of the differences between Buddhist and non-Buddhist, or non-Buddhist and Buddhist tenets. Does anyone remember that? Confirm or deny? Thank you, Mary Beth. Okay, so we're on page 75. If you're on the digital version, we are... And if you go to your table of contents, it's the uh, chapter one, not part one, it's before part one. It's called The Development of Indian Philosophy. And in that, it's the very last section of that essay. Uh, it's, on, uh, it's called The Summary of the differences between the non-Buddhist and the Buddhist schools of tenets. All good? The synonyms for non-Buddhist, literally outsider, chipa, are member of another school, not of this religion, and tirtikya. The synonyms of Buddhist, literally insiders, are of this religion, member of our school, insider, us, we, cool ones, Buddhists, because in Buddhist texts, the Tirtugas are outside the Buddhist system. They are outsiders, because they're other than Buddhist schools. This is silly. Okay. Skipping this paragraph, on what points do, the, do they, we differ? There's a variety of statements about this in the Buddhist scriptures, principle of which is that the difference is, difference between simply being a Buddhist and non Buddhist is made from the perspective of taking refuge. It's also well known that non-Buddhist Buddhist schools of tennis are distinguished based on also their views. Difference from the perspective of refuge 
is that a person who accepts that the three jewels set forth in the scripture of the Buddha are the true refuge is of an insider and vice versa. This is not all that helpful. I didn't uh, refresh my memory of this. Let's see. Difference between, next paragraph between them. Not only accept the three, three jewels, they also accept the four seals. That all conditioned things are impermanent. Did we go through this, that all contaminated things are of the nature of suffering? Didn't we talk about that? So what did we not get to? It, it does repeat. I mean, the four seals seems to repeat. So we, we went through the four seals earlier. Yes, but not this part. I mean, I see. it was meant really. Yeah, okay. And so we can do the same quiz then. What are they contaminated by? <laughs> Clashas. Clashas, belief of the self. That's right, thank you. Uh, nirvana, this piece. We went through what nirvana is, didn't we? Extensively. Yeah. The exception is the Vasiputriya school of the Samatiyas who accept the existence of an inexpressible self of person. So um, I skipped a couple of paragraphs from where I, we last were which is bottom of 76 for those of you that have patronation. Should they therefore not be counted as Buddhists? Although they do not accept the Buddhist view of no self, they are counted as Buddhists because we need their numbers in order to, no, sorry, uh, because of their practice of refuge ethics and so forth, also devoid of self in the four seals refers to the selflessness, that is the lack of a permanent, partless, independent self. And the Vatsiputriyas accept that. They just assert that there's a person. They don't assert that the person is part, permanent, partless, independent. Uh, because they assert the existence of a person that cannot be described as either conditioned or unconditioned. This does not contradict the assertion that all conditioned things are impermanent. Therefore, there is a tradition of explaining that it's okay to include them as being Buddhists. Uh, skipping ahead. Well, we've been through all this. There's the intro and then the text and they re repeat each other. It's interesting where the quotes come from, though. Uh, so, from where I was at the was was at the end of that paragraph, which is the top of seventy-seven, we have the salient points commentary to the Treasury of Abhidharma composed by Shamata Deva. That's a cool name, God of Shamata. I wonder what that person was good at. Says the 400 verses in praise of the Bhagavan by Maitricheta says, all phenomena are selfless, etc. Then we have a quote from the questions of the Naga King Sagara. So, 
You notice, uh, so this is a Mahayana Sutra. And uh, let's see, same thing. And then we have the ornament of the Mahayana Sutras. Who is the author of the ornament of the Mahayana Sutras? Anybody? It's a little bit of a trick question. No, there's only one ornament of the Mahayana Sutras. Chandrakirti? No, but that's close. Nagarjuna? Close. Okay, well. It's the other camps, the other guys. Oh, Vasubandhu. No. Oh, and. Um... Like <laughs> Maitreya. Oh, yeah. Maitreya. Right? The future Buddha. He's up in Tushita heaven waiting watching, looking at his watch. <clears throat> I have one question about relative to the little quotes. The first one only uses three marks. They leave out the contamination part. And then the Mahayana has the four and the other one is four. Is there any significance to the three versus four? Not that I know of. Uh, you know, that's what that's what the tradition now says is that the Hinayana have the three, and the Mahayana adds Nirvana is peace. This one leaves out contamination. Uh, yeah, contamination, suffering. All uh, contaminated phenomena are suffering. Yeah, this one leaves that out. So, but uh, basically, uh, what has been pointed out to me by a gentleman named Phil Stanley, who's uh, was a student from Rinpoche and teaches Buddhism at Naropa Institute and Nitarta Institute. He used to do so, Nathan too, right? Nathan school, yeah. That uh, in the early sutras, there's no version of the four marks. So these are all later Mahayana versions. Anyway, Nobala Sangha's Bodhisattva level says these are the four aphorisms of the Dharma the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas teach them in order to purify beings. What are the four? He goes through the same. Let's see. On, on our page 78, which is uh, the paragraph after a Sangha, the quote from a Sangha's text for Cynthia, says, regarding impermanence in the context of the four seals, most proponents of Buddhist tenets say that conditioned things are produced having a nature such that, such that they disintegrate due to the power of the same cause that produces them without relying on a cause for their disintegration that arises later. You get that? This like they're programmed obsolescence, right? All dharmas have programmed obsolescence as opposed to like some contravening other dharma entering in. Um, therefore, it's posited that by nature having been produced, they'll not remain for even a moment. The statement that all contaminated things are suffering means that contaminated phenomena related to the afflictions, klesias, Cynthia said as either their cause or effect, or else it refers to coming under their power to be empty and devoid of self, means that an experience of happiness, suffering that is separate from the aggregates does not exist, that there is no self that is the agent of actions, and there is nothing that belongs to such a self. 
The statement that nirvana is peace refers to the peace that is the destruction of the defilements in the mind. This is posited when Dharmakirti's exposition of valid knowledge says they are not permanent. Uh, they being the defilements in the mind, presumably. So... Skipping ahead. Okay, I think that's it. So let's do tonight's material, and I mistakenly included a little section from the Dalai Lama's introduction that we'll come revisit next week when we do Buddhist tenets. Oh, just one thing, speaking of what we were saying before about good news, I yeah. think the, the paragraph that says that they're the ones, that, the things that they agreed upon, we always yeah. talk about what they disagree on, right. but what they agree upon is actually significant that there was no debate about shared practices of such things as love, kindness, patience, contentment, and they all shared the same aim of present and future benefit and happiness of humanity. Yay! That's good news. <laughs> that is good news. That's great. So the next paragraph says one might ask, if there were so many practical points of agreement, why did they analyze things through the lens of negativity? They did so to liberate from suffering the disciples who believed in the different philosophies. They debate in order to delineate with correct reasoning their own philosophy as the basis for the practice of knowing what to adopt, what to discard, what to keep, and what to return. They did not debate out of attachment to their own philosophy or out of hatred for others. And they don't mention they, they didn't do it just because people like to argue? <laughs> yeah, they stayed away from that obvious reason. <laughs> okay, so chapter 3, we have pages uh, 35 to 44. Although, actually, let's start with 80 to 84. The text that collect and set forth. Wait a second, is 34 the same? 35? No, 35 goes through the schools. So first the text that collect, and this is from Lopez's, uh, no, it's from the actual text. Okay, so page 80, right where we were, how the text that collect set forth the different Indian schools, the tenets arose in general in points of controversy, Katavatu which is one of the seven books of the Abhidharma of Theravadan school, the assertions of the Vatsipatriya, Sarvastavada, and the Lokataravadans are refuted, and Theravadans' assertions are presented. The protector, Nagarjuna, such works as Root Verses on the Middle Way, known as Mulamanyamaka Karika in Sanskrit, the verses and commentary of his refutation of ob objections, Vikrahaviyavartani and the finely woven Vaidalya Sutra set forth the assertions of non-Buddhist and Buddhist proponents of true existence, making refutations and presenting his own position. This occurred in the early period. However, the most famous and earliest treatise on tenets that assembles in one place and extensively sets forth the assertions of the non-Buddhist Buddhist schools appears to be the essence of the middle way and its auto commentary, the blaze of reasoning by the great scholar of Nalanda, Bhava Viveka. Mm -hmm. Bhava Viveka, actually, sorry. Barbara, what? Um, 
I'm, I have the uh, digital one, and, and I, I don't know where we are. Maybe, Cynthia, you can help. Top of page 121 if you are on a EPUB version. Okay. That's what I'm on. And it's, okay, the, the title of the section is? How the text that collect and set forth the different Indian schools. Okay, all right. I, I, I know where that is. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, who lived in the 6th century, this, these two texts, The Essence of the Middle Way and The Blaze of Reason, and have 11 chapters, and because one is a commentary on the other. The first chapter, not relinquishing the aspiration to enlightenment, bodhicitta, and the second, correctly relying on the vow of the sage, set forth the topic of the vast practice of bodhisattvas. So a little resume of the, the those two texts. The third, seeking knowledge of reality, sets forth how to seek the profound reality from the perspective of the Madhyamaka system, which for Bhava Veka is the true reality. So in the first three chapters, he presents his view of the world, basically. The fourth chapter, answering the reality of the Shravakas, sets forth the schools of Vaibhashaka and Sautrantika, the fifth, entering Yogacara. Reality sets forth their views, and then it gets into the non-Buddhist schools of the Sankhya, Vaisheshika, Vedanta, and Mimamsa. The tenth sets forth the achievement of omniscience as the goal, complete nirvana, the uh, Buddhahood, and the eleventh chapter praises the Buddha for expounding the two truths. So this is not, uh, so then there's two works from the 8th century, the Nalanda scholar Shantarakshita, who we mentioned last week was famous for bringing Buddhism to Tibet, composed principle, Compendium of Principles, and Kamala Shila, his student who he left that wrote the Stages of Meditation texts, parts 1, 2, and 3, for the Tibetans on teaching them how to meditate. He wrote a commentary to the compendium of principles. And in that, the assertions of non-Buddhists and Buddhists are extensively delineated. Both the root text and commentary were famous in India, not only among the Buddhists, but among all the schools of tenets. The fundamental assertion of these two remains the view established by the protector, Nagarjuna, who protected the teachings. That is the Madhyamaka assertion of no entityness, ni swabhava. They are the knights who say ni. Right? However, because it emphasizes the topic of the valid means of knowledge and the modes of logical argument that were delineated well by Dignaga and his buddy Dharmakirti, it's an extremely important treatise that unites Madhyamaka and Pramana. So yeah, that was a sort of revolutionary thing that Shantarakshita Shita and Kamala Shila did, is that they united Madhyamaka and uh, the system of logic that was eschewed, eschewed, if I pronounce that correctly, by Chandrakirti and other Prasangikas. They were not into uh, studying logic and they thought it was un not only unnecessary, but potentially harmful and unhelpful on the path that it gave you all sorts of ideas. And like, you would have to accept that there's a, a subject in order to have a syllogism. And so they, they didn't like uh, Pramana. But uh, Shantarakshita and Kamala Shila were cool with it, and in fact, in favor of it, and they uh, wove them together, and that remains the main mode of presentation in all of the uh, Tibetan Buddhist schools to this day.
And uh, what they don't mention here is that they also brought together uh, Madhyamaka and uh, to some extent Yogacara in uh, the way they developed the two truths. And uh, they were subsequently reprimanded and replaced by Prasanga Madhyamakans in Tibet by the Galupas. Anyway, it has 30 chapters, we don't need to go through these in detail which this author does, these authors. And um, I'm so skipping uh, the next two paragraphs, the third paragraph after that, among the works of non-Buddhist scholars, you guys with, on page 82, the most famous of the treatises that gather and set forth school of tenets, the compendium of all views, Sarva Darshana Samgraha. So you get the feel for the Sanskrit, right? Sarva's all Darshana's views. In this case, uh, we have that distinction between views and Siddhanta, Siddhanta and, and Darshana. Um, and then Samgraha is a completely compiled. Sam is like completely and grahas pulled together, compiled. So compendium composed by the Vedanta school author Madhava, who lived in the 14th century. It has 16 chapters. He uh, dispenses with the Lokayatas, the Buddhists, and the Nigranta. Now the Lokayatas is another name for the Charvakas, the materialists. The Buddhists is another name for the followers of the Buddha. And the Nigranta is another name for the Jaina people who wear sky clothing. Did you catch that? Today there was a reference to those who wear sky clothing. Hopefully we'll get there. If you receive an invitation that says dress sky outfits, <laughs> that means uh, wear your, what is it, they call it your baby, your baby suit or something? Your birthday, another, you mean? Your birthday uniform, that's right, thank you. Nada. Um, anyway, we don't need to go through the contents of these books. The, uh, skipping the next chapter, in Tibet, the tradition of collecting and analyzing the assertions of these schools in a single text was sort of an obsession of the Tibetans. And it was widespread. And uh, he lists some of the ones, which is slightly interesting, beginning with the translator Yeshe Day, who was uh, one of the 25 disciples of Padmasambhava. He was one of the seven first monks in Tibet and one of the seven translators. And um, uh, so he wrote a compendium. Com he composed an explanation of different views. Now, strangely, they don't mention Padmasambhava, who wrote a garland of views, where he goes through the uh, the views of the different nine yanas. But uh, and then we have another. After that, the translator Kawa Paltsak, Paltsak rather, he composed his version. He was another one of the seven, seven, and twenty-five. And at the you know, so we're talking eighth century at the time of the later dissemination, which means after the persecution by Long Dharma from like 850 to 900, and then the subsequent disarray for another almost century. So uh, we're talking 1000 or so before things came together. So in the 11th century, Rongzong Pandita Chukisangpo, a Ning great Nyingma scholar. And so when, when Nyingmas today look back at like, who are the, what's the lineage of, 
sort of Nyingma scholars, they they pick Mipom, you know, going backwards. They go Mipom, Jigme Lingpa, which is interesting because they sometimes don't include Jigme Lingpa because he was not really that much of a scholar, but he he sort of uh, put together Longchenpa's works in a certain way. So, uh, but it really goes uh, Mipom, Longchenpa, and then Rongzong. Rongzong, uh, Chukisangpo, and uh, Padmasambhava. And there's very little translated by Rongzong, uh, but uh, hopefully things will come out eventually by him, including this text, which would be cool, I guess, if you're into this sort of text. After that, there were. Do that one? <laughs> I don't translate. <laughs> I just read translators' works. You know, each of us has a different job, and I figured my job was to that there should be somebody who actually reads their stuff, because otherwise, if you have translators, and then you have the general public who don't read their works, their translations, right? So we have this very small little group of us that actually read what the translators translate. And these days, I don't know if you guys look, but it's just like a flood of translations coming out. It's like mind boggling, unbelievable. There's this series by uh, Tsadra Foundation of uh, the different Tibetan schools by Jomgun Kongchul. Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Anyway, after that, there was a composing order, the Lord of Reasoning, Chapa Chaki Senge. So he's early, he's before Galukpaism started with Tsongkhapa. And uh, he's like from Songpu, which is like where Tisha went. And uh, so he's an interesting guy. Summary of presentations of non-Buddhists and Buddhist tendons. And then we have uh, Chekawa. Jekawa, who was, by the way, the author of the seven-point system of Lojong before uh, Lo, uh, Tisha sort of took it and repackaged it and marketed it and took the branding with it. And then uh, Chomden, Rigpe Reltries, and I'm not sure quite who this is. Chomden is the first two of three syllables that's usually used to describe a Buddha, Chomden Day. Chom then Chom Chom is uh, the uh, Chom the all the su supreme precious qualities, and Den is the possession of those. Um, is that a con no conquering? Chom is conquering, Den is possessing, and Day, which is missing, is uh, is going beyond samsara. Rigpa Reltri, that's the name of one of the Karmapas, right? Karmapa Rigpa Reltri. Anyway, not sure who that guy is. Uh, and then we Upalo Sauls. These are all early, early guys. And then Jamagan Sakya Pandita, the, the uh, star of the Sakya tradition. And then we have Longchenpa, Treasury of Tenants, which happens to be one that we went went through in a course, and, and Brent, I think most of you, of you were there. The root text and commentary of Taksang Lotsawas. So Taksang, I don't know quite who Taksang Lotsawa is, a translator, Taksang Lotsawa. Interesting guy. Then we have the second Dalai Lama, Gedek Gyatso. Uh, his is quite short, and it's translated and available. And then we have uh, the root text and commentary of the omniscient. You can tell there's there's slats, Jami Shapa's great tenets. 
And then the sky chunk here will be Dorsch's beautiful ornament in Mount Miru, also translated by a library of Tibetan classics, Tupten Jinpa, as well as many short works on tenants by Galuk scholars such as Kunchuk Jungme Wangpo's. And that's the one that's in the book called uh, Buddhist Philosophy. And then later we have Mipom's collection of tenets, which I circulated, right? Everybody got that? And we'll begin using that. It starts, uh, the translation doesn't have the non-Buddhist schools. I don't know if it has any non-Buddhist schools uh, in it, but it, it starts with the Shravakas, Vaibhashika. Uh, um, so we'll use that as an alternate source to the extent we can when we get there. The wish granting treasury. And if you don't remember seeing that, let me know and I'll send it to you again. And Drakai Losang Peldens Galukpa. No Kagyupas, maybe Taksong, maybe Taksong Lotsawa might be Karmapa. I have to check on that. Anyway, in these texts, the schools are explained. It's based primarily, primarily on the root text and commentary of by Bhavavaveka, interestingly, and Shantarakshita. In addition, there are such texts as Aryadeva's Compendium of the Essence of Wisdom. Aryadeva being Nagarjuna's sidekick, his uh, main student, and his commentary composed by Bodhibhadra, and then a text and commentary by Jaitari, like that guy's name, distinguishing the Sugatastanic texts and other Nalanda scholars and adepts. The principal source for non-Buddhist schools include the verses of Sankhya, Sankarakarya, and the Barhashputya Sutra, in the compendium of Charaka in Mahadeva's text on tenets cited above. Boom. Okay, so then let's go back to uh, 35 to 40. He does a good overview of the non-Buddhist schools, I thought. It was quite good. Okay, so for uh, those of you who are digitoids, we went back to the what's called the introductory essay by Donna Lopez the table of contents is the third entry in the table of contents after the essay and the intro by the Dalai Lama introductory essay by Donald S. Lopez Jr. And, and by the way once we get into the main text it won't be this confusing uh, page 35 and so in that introductory essay it's towards the end and it's the heading that says Sankhya which is S-A-N-K H-Y-A. Can I ask you a quick question? This is Dean. Dean, please. I, yeah, long time. Um, I had a question just on, so it seems like I, I was reading the, the preface or the introduction, and they were mentioning the, some of these other tenant books, and they seem to be singling out Jamyang, uh, the, the great tenants. And the beautiful adornment of Mount Maru, and I was wondering if you had any comments on that. I mean, they're they're bulky. I think maps of the profound was that the one that Hopkins translated. Is is that um, Jam, what is it? Jamyang Jam, Shem, Yeah, Jamyang and, and then also they were so clear that actually Lopez was chosen to write this volume three because he translated Beautiful Adornment. And I was just wondering if you had any comments on that. It, it's just a lot of material to wade through and, and you know, <laughs> a projection into it and not getting too bogged down, going in like this fractal of, of literature. 
you know, yeah. for a start. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's sort of a couple of parts to your, to your question. And the last part is like, it's a huge amount of material and like how to how to go through it. And sort of the, the answer to that question is provided in this book by this so-called Compendium Compilation Committee author of this book, which is like, this is the condensation of those different tenant texts, because they're all geshes that compose this this book, and they necessarily will uh, pull from Jamnya Shepa and uh, Chankya Rolbe Dorje's versions. And uh, so uh, they, and they, as we went through uh, the last couple of weeks, or maybe last week, what they've done in this volume is that they've been much more eclectic based on the access to literature by the actual um, authors of texts of the different non-Buddhist schools on the one hand, which have been uh, accessible now since the Tibetans came out into India and have studied at various Indian universities like Benares University. They have access to the actual treatises by the heads of the different non-Buddhist schools so they can see what they were saying as opposed to simply repeating what was basically repeated over and over again by the different scholars in Tibet that we just went through that litany of names. And <clears throat> so theoretically, this is the best sort of compilation because it compares these different, um, uh, sorry, it presents these other schools from their own sources. And then it also compares different versions in a way that Jamyang uh, Shepa and Chankya did not quite do. They basically presented their party line and they established the Galukpa party line. Um, and as you said, Jamyang uh, Shepa, Jamyang Shepa is like the main Galukpa text. And when uh, Hopkins came, uh, established his Department of Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Virginia, I don't know how many, how, if this is of interest to anybody else, but he had a, a bunch of graduate students and unlike every other place in the world where graduate students get to pick their own thesis this thesis topic he said i'm choosing the topic for you and you're each doing a chapter of john yom shapeless presentation of tenants <laughs> and so you got ann klein elizabeth knapper donna lopez and uh uh, one or two others that each do a chapter and they're published in different books. And then finally Hopkins comes out and, and translates the whole thing in this massive text book called uh, Maps of the Profound, which is sort of unreadable the way he translates it. So it's like the, the presentation of it is so difficult to to look at just visually even i don't know if you've looked at it dean but it's like he interweaves the subject headings and the outline and the commentary and, the, and it's just like so confusing um and then there's a translation in tupton jimpa's library tibetan classics as i as i just said of uh, chanky rope dorji's beautiful ornament which looks really good and i almost used that i like i was checking that out should we bail on this one and and i looked at like the length of the presentation of the different schools and i <laughs> i literally said well these ones are longer and so they must go into more detail than chanky did because he does a lot on the he does much longer presentations on the non but his schools and his text. So I figured this would be the better one to go through.
So um, personally, I, I like uh, I like the text Buddhist philosophy by Daniel Kozort translates uh, Gon what is his name Gonchok Lo Song something or other, uh, which I think is a really fine simple version of the tenets from the Galupa point of view. Um, but but uh, you know if you really want to douse yourself in Galupa tenets, there are those other larger texts. I appreciate it and I'm sorry if this is redundant information. There is one no, other good. thing that that I, I just and then, and then I'll stop. It the, the, the thing is, I'm curious about is in these texts, the modern ones, because I, I did recall what you were saying. They have access to the Indian libraries now that they've moved out of China in exile. But just one other thing was, did they strip out the grounds and paths aspect of the tenants in these translations? And then you got to go back if you really want the full treatment. That's where I was a little confused if it, I needed to supplement the reading. They did, and I was disappointed at that too. But um, I sort of, I sort of went along with uh, their logic that the focus of this should be on, um, should be on the, the actual ph philosoph philosophical tenets, and let's get into that, and uh, not as much into um, the the grounds and paths which uh, the grounds and paths for one between the different Mahayana schools are, are uh, fairly similar and between the, the Hinayana schools are fairly similar. And I, I had mentioned in an earlier class that I would pull together some materials on the, the paths and fruit sections of these texts and we'll go through some presentations of the of that material in Tibetan, the, the preliminary text for the study of that topic grounds of the path and the the main text on the path in the Shedra curriculum, the five, the, there's five texts that make up the Shedra curriculum and the text for the path is Maitreya's um, Ornament of Higher Realization, Abhisamaya Alamkara. And, um, the, the uh, preparatory primer sort of text for that is universally called grounds and and uh, and levels. Sa is uh, bumi, bumi and uh, uh, paths. What is path? Marga and bumis. Marga is path, and uh, bumis are the levels of the bodhisattvas. And um, they they almost all go very quickly through anything that's relevant to people like us who are basically on the path of accumulation. And they go off into these loftier zones that are basically sort of legendary accounts of the Buddha's experience on the grounds and the paths. Uh, you know, so anything like helpful of like what you and I might be doing day to day or over the course of our lifetime in terms of our path it is not really present in those to to the law to a large extent and it's much more helpful to uh, um, focus on the early stages of the uh, the Hinayana sorry the uh, path of accumulation 
So we'll do that. So I'll, I'll present a little stuff on the, uh, like overview of the five paths and the boomies, and then we'll focus in on the path of accumulation, which is realistically what we look like. And, and I have the assertion that basically if you achieve the path, the second path, it looks like enlightenment to us. And many of the enlightened teachers that we see as enlightened are probably on the second path, which is sort of a weird thing to say. This is like to where teachers are in the, on the path is a very nebulous thing, particularly for somebody as uh, confused as I am. But when you read the, the formal descriptions, you, you'll get a feel for it. So anyway, thanks for bringing that up again. It reminded me that I need to do that, pull that material together. Thank you very much for your time and everybody's patience. Thank I, you, I, I, wait, I waded through a lot of maps of the profound, actually, oh. 800 pages of it. Whoa. It was brutal. It was, I actually <laughs> read it twice, too. Yeah, wow. it, was, it, was, it was hard. It was hard going. And actually, this text seems a lot clearer and more just... Yeah, easier yeah. to ask yeah so anyway okay thank you for your time that is right. so cool that you went through maps of the profound twice. Well, i read this book twice too but now i'm going wow. through a third time trying to figure this out it's that complex. is awesome it is yeah, yeah, it is, it is. It's, 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 I'm, i just i don't they have a reason for being this complex i know they do I, my gut's telling me there's a rationale <laughs> uh... it's not it's non-trivial <laughs> They, they they have to be going into school for 20 years for something not just like self-delusion i i doubt it I yes strongly do, okay. doubt that okay. <laughs> all right but uh check out a buddhist philosophy by kozort you know if you want uh, you know i think at this point have it for you having gone through those others you would you would really enjoy buddhist philosophy because it's just so simple and clear. Okay, I'll look into it. Kozor, yeah, I've heard that name before as an author. Very well respected, it seems like. Yeah, Lo Sung Gunchok's short commentary to Jamyang Shepa's root text on its tenets. Um, there's one other good text. I, I saw the cutting through appearances. The, That's that the one. other one. That's the other yeah, one. That, that's appearance. when they said they used that the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics. Apparently, mm. a lot of the geishas, that's what they trained out of, apparently. I, I don't that's, know. That's my favorite. It used to be called Walking Through Walls, but Cutting Through Appearances is actually my favorite one. Actually, it first came out as Buddhist Philosophy and Theory and Practice. Yeah, so, so check out that one instead of Buddhist Philosophy. I'll let you proceed and I'll, I'll drop my questions. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is a catch up for six mm. times. Like cutting, cutting through appearances is great. Okay. Yeah, I got a copy of it. I just didn't read it because I didn't see a reference in this book and I was curious why. He yeah. doesn't reference it in this book in any of the bibliography and I was curious that why. Is, that is weird. I found that weird too. He does, they did just mention, I think, maybe they didn't. You know, there's there's differences in the Galupa schools. They have three colleges and they don't all get along. They almost fight more than they do with other schools. Anyway, so let's come back to our 
review of the different non Buddhist schools, which begins with Sankhya. And uh, so we have a review of these schools in the introduction, and then we have this uh, summary of them at the beginning of the actual text before the, the compendium committee goes to the non-Buddhist schools in more detail. And this summary by Lopez and the summary by the compendium committee are pretty similar. So I'm going to go with just this one, and we'll spend some time on this, and then... Uh, We'll go from there. So with this background, the individual chapters on even non-Buddhist schools begins for those readers who may not be familiar with Indian philosophy, both Buddhist and non-Buddhist. important to know that each school tries to provide a comprehensive system, its own theory of everything. Like Steve Hawkins accounting for all components of the physical world, all states of mind, and all events, this focus of Indian philosophy, often to the point of obsession with accounting, <laughs> makes it appropriate that the first school to be considered a Sankhya, which means the enumerationists, <laughs> the accountants. It's pretty comical. You know, when you go into accounting, the most of the people in accounting are either Indian or Chinese. <laughs> But it makes sense that Indians would be there because that's their roots. It is the subject of uh, the longest of the non-Buddhist chapters in the volume, in part because of its priority as the oldest of the classical schools, and in part because of its great influence, especially uh, its influence on Buddhist thought, with Buddhist authors writing about it for almost a millennium. Uh, each of the chapters beginning with this one has a similar structure, opening with a brief history of the school, listing its major figures and most important texts. This followed by a definition of the school, a discussion of the other names, its other names, enumeration of the subschools, and it's followed by the heart of each chapter, a discussion of the principal tenets, philosophical positions, generally beginning with the external world, and then turning to consciousness, just like this series did, the objective world and the subjective experience. It's in the latter section where we find a discussion of epistemology as well as the all-important topic of valid, valid knowledge. Here we learn the founder of Sankhya was the ancient Rishi Kapila, a figure mentioned in the Upanishads. He's also considered the founder of atheistic branch, branch of Sankhya. So there's two branches of Sankhya, the atheistic and the theistic. The founder of the theistic branch is Parana, oh, sorry, Patanjali, who's the author of the Yoga Sutra, where yoga is famously defined as the cessation of mental activity. They probably don't teach that when they teach yoga these days. Um, Turning to their tenets, we immediately encounter Sankhya's bold attempt to count for everything in their 25 categories. Uh, and the term they use is tatva, sometimes translated as principles, presenting the most radical example of consciousness matter dualism in Indian thought. Of the 25, 24, including mind, intellect, and ego, are matter, or primary nature, prakriti, from which everything arises and to which everything returns. Only one is consciousness, the silent observer known as the self or the person, the Purusha. Theistic Sankhya adds God, Ishwara, as the agent of change. In this chapter, each of the 25 principles describes some detail, as are the three well-known qualities, Guna, of primary nature, Sattva, lightness, Rajas, mobility, and Tamas, darkness. 
probably this is these are somewhat familiar to everybody some of this stuff the three gunas and the purusha you know it's like we hear these you know through yoga it's like the influence of these things is sort of pervasive beyond the discussion of the 25 principles several other sections of this chapter of particular interest these include the discussion of the three sources of valid knowledge according to Sankyo's direct perception inference and reliable testimony so those three direct perception inference which is the two that are accepted by Dignaga and Dharma Kirti and then reliable testimony and uh, the Buddhists have scripture which is the reliable testimony of the Buddha so it's quite a, uh, similar um this is interesting in its own right as well as for the fact that it served as the foundation of the positions of other schools who in most cases would include additional valid means of knowledge the bullet buddhists rather would subtract one verbal testimony verbal it's supposed to be reliable uh, leaving only one, oh, leaving only direct perception inference. Although not philosophy in the technical sense, there is something almost poignant about how Sankhya describes the process of liberation from rebirth. Primary nature and the person have always worked together according to the famous simile there, like a lame man, the person, riding on the shoulders of a blind man, the primary nature. Over the age of their association, the person mistakenly comes to imagine himself as the agent of primary nature's actions. Eventually, however, through the practice of concentration, the, uh, the person comes to recognize their error. At this point, primary nature withdraws from the person and a sequence begins in which the 23 material elements that evolved from primary nature, each arising from the one before, begin to slowly dissolve into each other in reverse order, leaving just primary nature, the point, the point at which there's only the person and the primary nature now in the unmanifest state is called isolation. Uh, this, for Sankhya, is liberation very interesting process or description of the whole scheme then we have the Vaisheshikas or the particular school similar to the Vaibhashikas <clears throat> is able to encompass everything that can be known in only six categories they just boiled it down uh, categories that both in Sanskrit and English seem to indicate a move towards philosophical abstraction substance quality activity universal particularity and inherence with later adherence of the school in a seventh category non-existence radically different from Sankhya which are very like down-to-earth things um, as in the other Indian schools categories are composed of many elements the first substance has nine for example an ostensibly disparate group that includes the four physical elements earth water fire and wind as well as space time and direction followed by self and mind as in the other chapters each of these is defined here we learn that although the various physical entities composed of earth water fire and wind are impermanent the individual particles of these four are permanent a position the Buddhists would attack this emphasis on the abstract is evident throughout the six categories and their subcategories different from Sankhya whose 25 principles include so many body parts and mental functions 
In Vaisheshika, can we find in a, under quality such concepts as size, disjunction, distance, and proximity, each of which is not a description of a state, but an active agent that produces that state. Proximity, for example, is defined as a quality that serves as the specific cause of the convention of nearness. <laughs> nearness is like a thing. Proximity. The self, Atman, is, that is described in Vaisheshika also differs from the remote and passive person, the Purusha of the Sankhya. It is endowed with the agency and emotions associated with ego in the Western, Western, in the Western in sense, in the Western sense of the term. Well, look at that typo. Its qualities are intellect, pleasure, pain, desire, aversion, effort, merit, demerit, and formative acts, force. Indeed, some of their proofs for the existence of self are based on this idea of agency, that on the physical level, there must be something to regulate the energies that flow throughout the body that cause the eyes to open and close. On the emotional level, there must be something that serves as the basis of desire and hatred. As the chapter notes, a full description of the nature of the self, according to Varsheshika, is found in volume four of the series. Of this series, rather, among the schools of Indian philosophy, the Vaisheshika categories are universal in the particular world. Sorry, and the particular would be influential in the field of logic. But universal defined as that which serves as the cause for a shared term or concept to apply to a substance, quality, or activity, whether it is something all encompassing, such as existence, or something particular like a cow <laughs> or cow. It is the universal that allows someone to see a black cow and a white cow and understand that they belong to the same cowness, despite the difference in their color. The category of particularity performs the opposite function, serving as the cause for the ability to observe difference. The Nyaya school. The term Nyaya is generally translated as reasoning or logic. The school by that name is credited with providing a sophisticated system of logic to Indian philosophy. Its foundational text is the Nyaya Sutra, perhaps best translated as aphorisms on reasoning, attributed to the Rishi Akshapada, uh, also known as Gautama, another Gautama similar to the Buddha. His dates are unknown, and how much of the text is his own is unclear. The Madhyamaka Master Nagarjuna, usually dated the second century, provides a critique of the first chapter. So he's before Nagarjuna. Nyaya would provide the foundation for Buddhist logic, largely through the Buddhist contestation of many Nyaya categories. That contestation with each party attacking the other would continue for almost a millennium. Like the other Hindu schools, Nyaya has its list of categories meant to encompass everything. Its sharp focus on logic is obvious simply from the names of its 16 categories, means of knowledge, the objects of comprehension, doubt, purpose, example, tenet, parts, reasoning, ascertainments, debate, disputation, cavil, cavil. I had to look that one up. <laughs> That's where cavalry comes from. Cavil is like a sort of verbal discord or something, right? Pseudo-reason, um, deceit, self-defeating objections, and points of defeat. Um, this is confirmed when we note that the cosmology, ontology, epistemology, and soteriology that consume most of the categories the other schools are, for the most part, dispensed with in just the second of the Nyaya categories, object of cons comprehension, where we find Atman, 
body, sense faculties, objects, intellect, mind, activity, fault, future lives, effects, suffering, and liberation. Nyaya and Vaisheshik are often paired in presentation of the, presentations of the Indian schools. In the present volume, the Vaisheshika position on the forms of valid knowledge is deferred to the Nyaya chapter because of its similarity. More than half of the chapter is devoted to means of knowledge, that is, valid knowledge, holding pride of place as the first of the 16 categories. So a lot of similar, like, uh, things that uh, the Buddhists are concerned with. Valid knowledge, liberation, how things function. In these first three schools, Nyaya is renowned for positing four valid means of knowledge, the standard direct perception inference, as well as analogy and testimony. The Buddhists would accept the first pair with important modifications and reject the second as sources of valid knowledge. Nyaya was particularly influential in its detailed description of the mechanics of the syllogism and its classifications of various kinds of signs, linga or marks or reasons which are set forth with examples at the conclusion, conclusion of the chapter in this book presenting their tradition. Mimamsa, examination or investigation is among the most fascinating of the schools of Indian philosophy, a school that is at once conservative and radical, conservative for its strict adherence to the Vedas, not so much work like the Upanishads, but the early works on Vedic sacrifice, radical for its firm resistance to concepts like liberation from rebirth that would come to be shared by the other schools, both Hindu and Buddhists. For Mimamsa, emotions like desire cannot be purged from the mind through meditation or any other means because desire is a natural property of the mind, like heat for fire. So that they, uh, they have resistance to the concept of liberation from rebirth. Um, the Vedic gods are not deities to be worshipped, but are simply the components of properly performed Vedic rituals. So the rituals themselves are like talked about as gods, but they're not considered the actual gods. The ritual produces the desired boon result. Religious practice is Vedic ritual. It is Mimamsa that would prove to be Buddhism's most formidable opponent in India is measured by the pages that major figures like Bhaviveka and Shantaraksha to devote to refuting them. People used to have three V's in Bhaviveka's name, and I'm like so used to saying it, I can't stop saying it. Bhaviveka and Shantaraksha to devote to refuting them and sophisticated attacks against Buddhist positions mounted by figures like the late 7th century scholar Kumarilla. Among the many factors that led to the decline of Buddhism in India, the sustained critique by the Mamamsaka is often counted. Mamamsa counts six forms of valid knowledge, direct perception, inference, analogy, verbal testimony, postulation, and non-existence. I don't know how non-existence can be in there but anyway the first two are familiar from other schools the last two would tend to be seen as forms of inference for months and the most important is verbal testimony which is which is defined here as apprehending the meaning of a hidden object of knowledge based on sound that's the most important interesting it is two kinds produced from a sound not made by a person and produced by the speech of a trustworthy person interestingly reminiscent of the 
uh, division of sound into two types in the uh, collected topics. One of them being uh, sound uh, made by a person and the other one being what? Sound? Natural sounds. Right, not, be, not made by a person. <laughs> so it covers all, all types. Thank you. Um, they assert that because both understand the hidden meaning, they are not direct perception. And because they do not rely on a sign with the three modes, they are also not inference, interestingly. Interesting way of like dealing with uh, these issues of like what is a hidden meaning versus or object versus uh, a non-hidden object. So do we, do you remember the scheme of hidden and, and non-hidden objects? A hidden object is an object that's hidden from direct perception, such as the uh, idea of impermanence. We don't actually see that with our senses. We infer it by seeing changes in the same. Uh, thing that appears in a certain place in our world over time. So those are hidden objects, and hidden objects are the objects of valid of uh, inference, whereas evident objects are the objects of direct perception. And so uh, dharma, emptiness, enlightenment, things like that are hidden objects that can only be gotten at through uh, inference for normal people, but can actually be uh, gotten at as through direct perception for arias. And so arias have a, an actual direct perception of the true nature of reality is emptiness. Um, and then uh, we're familiar with, uh, uh, let's see, it says, uh, because they do not rely on a sign with the three modes. So we know the three modes, right? The, the, uh, the subject mode, the forward pervasion, and the reverse pervasion, which we won't go into. Um, the key phrase here is sound not made by person. This refers to the Vedas, which are regarded as persistent and eternal sounds, spoken by no god or humans, but only eventually heard by the great sages of the past. This is like the ultimate prototypical idea of scripture. Scripture is like just sacred texts that just sort of appear, <laughs> you know, and in, in the West, you know, the Judea, uh, Judaistic, what do they call it, Judaism tradition, Judaism tradition, uh, we have Moses goes up to uh, the mount, the mountain, I don't know what mountain, can't remember, and God gives him three tablets, each containing five, um, what are they called? commandments right and he breaks one is that is that how it goes do i have that right he actually Arafat, mount ararat arafat and Ar he, ararat oh ararat ararat and judea <laughs> ararat that's a bad judea. rat it's an yeah, rat so, yeah. so then the judaic tradition thank you so much helping me out there with my roots yeah, so yeah. doesn't he break doesn't he break one of the tablets no, that's all it. of them. No, he breaks all of them. For initial breaking, yeah, he, right. because yeah. It, it's like in the it's Ten Commandments movie. He throws them all down, and then they and then he. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. So they have to rewrite the them. He rewrote them now. <laughs> they weren't prepared for it. Yeah, but this, I'm know, thinking this. of Joseph Smith, the Mormon guy who receives these things, and he loses one of them. Right, the Tabernacles. There, right. he, he just, ask, just ask the glam here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, um... Yeah, but they sing into existence, right? I think that's in the, like... The, the, they like, sing more... Yeah, cool. yeah, the, all the, the whole, all the texts were written, original fire script in Hebrew and diacritical marks, and they were sung. So the scripture were sung. Oh right, and, and this that was similar in the Vedas that I recall. Yes, like that's the, right. The Alm, you you sing God's sung existence into creation, and peculiar, interestingly enough, in physics we have co concepts like the sun itself actually makes acoustic. The analysis of the sun is done through acoustical analysis. That's um, neat. And then yeah. there was that thing about the hum, the the hum that pervades the universe. Oh right. Right. There was an yeah, article so about that recently. Left, left over from the yeah, I think um, that's what they're referring to more. It's, the, it's that level. That's not why my computer thing. makes that sound, that buzzing sound. Yeah. It was, it was it's the, the burning same thing. Bush. The burning bush. Yeah, it was the burning bush. That's where the tablets were um, Okay, revealed. okay. Indeed, the fact that there's no memory of the author of the Vedas is offered by Mamamsa as proof that they have no they have no author. I love that one. It's like nobody can remember who wrote them, so therefore there must not have been an author. I think we should do that. It must they must be like self-arisen because we can't remember who wrote them. The words of the Veda are valid, reliable, and trustworthy precisely because they're not the product of fallible humans and their foibles. The chapter concludes with a section on Charaka, sometimes described as a related school named after a sage associated with the ancient Indian medical tradition of Ayurveda. Although it's therefore mostly known in the context of traditional medicine, it has its own positions on what constitutes valid knowledge, including two that do not appear in the other schools, oral transmission and intuition. That's cool. The first would be like knowledge passed down in local community that a spirit resides in a certain tree. The second would be like a sister thinking that her brother will come home on a certain day, and he does. Boom. Vedanta, although among the schools of Hindi and Hindu philosophy, Vedanta is certainly the best known in the West, the result of efforts of Hindu proponents such as Swami Vivekananda, beginning in the last decades of the 19th century. However, as our text notes, the contributions of Vedanta to Indian philosophy in a strict sense, especially in the domains of epistemology and logic, have been less significant than those of the other schools. What he start he started this group boy the fellowship of reconciliation or something or self-realization that was this thing self-realization fellowship or something um and he paved the way for the the rest of them uh, let's see our text gives us evidence of this the relative dearth of references to vedanta and the works of dignanga should be noted however that this can be attributed in part to the fact that vedanta rose to its greatest prominence as buddhism fell toward its demise in india a process that advaita vedanta and especially its most famous figure shankara sought to hasten by the way some people think that the uh, patanjali's yoga aphorisms was a buddhist text some people think that Shankara's, Shankara was a Buddhist also. Uh, but anyway, um, Shankara's important predecessor, Gaudapada, and his school are the subject of a chapter in Bhavaveka's 
Avi Vega's Blaze of Reasoning. The presentation of Vedanta here is large, drawn largely from Shantarakshita's discussion of Vedanta and its compendium of principles. <coughs> As its name, End of the Veda, suggests, Vedanta, so Veda Anta. And we've seen this, this particle in Sanskrit, this little uh, um, word in Sanskrit, Anta, meaning ends or limits, like Madhyanta, being the, uh, the 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 center and the fringe, the ends anyway um, or limits. <clears throat> Vedanta draws its inspiration not from the early parts of the Vedas on sacrifices, Mamamsa does, but on the last section, the Upanishads. These are its acknowledged and orthodox sources. The chapter here concludes with a discussion on the unacknowledged influences, not only of Shankya, but of Madhyamaka and Yogacara. Indeed, when we read the definition of Vedanta, it would not be surprising to feel that we are we were reading a definition of Yogacara were it not for the phrase that follows the scripture of the Vedas. That definition is a philosophy that follows the scripture of the Vedas and argues that all phenomena are the nature of consciousness, empty of the duality of object and apprehender. That non-dual consciousness is eternal and true. Everything else, the world and its inhabitants is an illusion. Liberation is achieved by understanding the identity of the individual self, Atman, and ultimate reality, Brahman. This is the central focus of Vedanta. On those occasions when they discuss valid knowledge, they follow the sixfold system of the Mamamsa. With the conclusion of this chapter, we reach the end of the presentation of the Hindu schools among the non-Buddhist schools of Indian philosophy. We now turn to the two well-known non-Hindu schools, Jaina and Lokayata. The Jaina and the uh, the Tibetan source text calls this chapter on explanation of the tenets of the Jaina or Nigranta. The name Jaina means follower of the conqueror, Jina, and uh, Nigranta might be translated as the unencumbered, in this case by clothing, referring to those Jaina monks who go naked. Among the schools of classical Indian philosophy, Jainism has the most in common with Buddhism. Both reject the Vedas, the source of valid knowledge. Both have orders of celibate monks and nuns, and both have founders who appeared at roughly the same time in ancient India while tracing their tradition back through a series of teachers in previous epochs. epochs. The Jaina founder called Vardhamana and Mahavita was, like Prince Siddhartha, a prince of the warrior caste, who left the life of a householder in search of enlightenment, practicing asceticism for 12 years rather than Siddhartha's six years <clears throat> before achieving enlightenment. He is counted as the 24th jina, an epithet also used for the Buddha. Indeed, Buddhism and Jainism share much vocabulary, although, as the chapter notes, often with different meanings. The two groups had much contact, and as rivals criticized each other with Buddhist texts, often mocking Jaina monks for their immodesty and going naked, and for the Jaina criticizing Buddhist monks for eating meat. Boom! <laughs> is that wild? You know, people wonder, you know, aren't Buddhists vegetarians? <laughs> and they were not traditionally vegetarians and the Jainists criticized them for that they ate what they were offered 
Buddhism and Jainism are the only two of the non-Vedic ascetic groups to survive to the present day. Buddhism moved beyond the borders of India. Jainism did not. Jainism survived in India. Buddhism until its rather recent return by uh, Ambedkar did not. After giving a brief biography of Mahavira and mentioning some of the most important works in the prodigious Jaina canon, the chapter turns to the Jaina categorizations of the constituents of the universe enumerated as seven principles and six substances, unlike some of the categories of the other schools. The seven principles of Jaina, soul, non-soul, influx, influx. <laughs> Bondage, stoppage, dissociation, or destruction, liberation are all concerned with the process of achieving liberation from rebirth. Two more, sin and merit, are sometimes added. As in other schools, the soul, jiva, or self, is eternal and said to be the size of the body. That's practical. Somebody finally like defines, like, so how big is it and how does it relate to the body? It's just the size of the body. So if you get like a leg amputated, I guess, I don't know. It's reduced. Uh, unlike the Buddhists who hold that there are six classes of sentient beings, the Jaina hold that there are nine cited in the text as earth, water, tree, fire, wind, worm, <laughs> ant, bee, and human. What a cool list, huh? This is, uh, that is, inanimate objects such as earth, water, and wind, as well as insects, animals, and humans, with a number of sense faculties ranging from one touch to five. Some of the Jaina arguments for why plants have consciousness are presented at the end of the chapter. That's become a popular topic, hasn't it, recently? Jainism shares some of the themes found in Sankhya about the association of the self with matter and the description of liberation of the soul from matter, hence the presence of terms like influx, bondage, and stoppage among the Jaina principles. Here, however, it is karma that is the culprit flowing in and binding the soul. The Jaina path involves stopping the influx of karma by a variety of means. This is the philosophical foundation for the well-known Jaina practices of Ahimsa, literally non-injury, as well as the ascetic practices of Jaina monks. Mentioned here are the five fires in which one sits under the sun as the first fire, surrounded by four fires in the, in the cardinal directions as means of burning off karma. That's practical. Take things literally. When all karma has been destroyed, the sixth principle of destruction, one achieves liberation, the seventh principle. The Jaina emphasis on meditation is also evident in their description of consciousness where knowledge gained through the senses, what is called direct perception of Buddhism is, although valid, classified as indirect, with direct valid knowledge limited to extrasensory knowledge, knowledge of others' minds and omniscience. Each of these is defined in the chapter on the question of inference as a source of valid knowledge. The Jaina expressed a skepticism exceeded only by the Lokayatas, accepting a proposition as valid only if it is otherwise inexplicable. <laughs> inexplicable. Indeed, the Jaina have a sophisticated epistemology at odds with and often in debate with that of the Buddhists, centering especially around the terms, uh, whatever, many-sidedness, which they illustrate with the story of the blind men and the elephant. And, uh, uh-huh. It may be the case, neither of which is discussed in the chapter for some strange reason. The Lokaya to among the seven chapters in the non-Buddhist schools, the second longest chapter is devoted to the Lokaya to also known more famously as the Charaka. Despite, or perhaps because of their being the most universally maligned of all the schools of Indian philosophy, labeled as 
um, Uche Devada, literally proponents of destruction, proponents of cutoffness, rendered as annihilationists or nihilists because they do not believe in karma or even causation. They do not believe in rebirth, and yet they've survived birth after birth, being mentioned almost always negatively in Hindu and Buddhist texts for centuries. From a somewhat more neutral perspective, they might be called materialists, skeptics, or even secular humanists. Their Sanskrit name, Lokayata, is used in Indian philosophical literature to mean to be on the world in the sense of beyond the pale. Their other name, Charvaka, might be rendered as hedonist. The chapter cites a Buddhist text to the effects that the school existed prior to the time of the Buddha, but notes that modern scholarship suggests that its texts date from around the time of the Buddha. Among the most famous claim is that consciousness is produced from the body and not from a prior moment of consciousness, as some Buddhist schools assert. This position alone forecloses both rebirth and liberation from it. Like so many Indian schools, its origin is traced back to an ancient Rishi. This is this, sorry, however, immediately raised the question of how a sage could advocate a view that the other schools regard as so obviously false. Rishis are like, by definition, ones who come, who like understand the cosmic world. Uh, let's see, there uh, Hindu texts account for this by saying that the gods of the heaven of the 33 <laughs> the heaven of the 33 is one of the, uh, I think it's the highest God realm in the, in the realm of desire, right? There's three realms. There's desire, form, and formlessness. And the God realms start at the top of the heaven, of, at the top, rather, at the, at the top of the realm of desire, and then extend through the form realms and the formless realms. So you have sort of like seven realms of gods. And the gods in the desire realm have, there's like a bunch of different stages in the, I think the top one is the 33 because uh, I'm not sure. That, isn't that where they make the beer in 33? I think so. Um, on the summit of Mount Meru, the Rishi named Brihashpati was their teacher. Where once again, were once again at war with the demigods, the Asuras, who lived on the slopes of the mountain. And in order to send them to hell, he taught them this depraved view. His work, known as Barhaspatsya or something Sutra, is mentioned in a number of Buddhist texts. And thus, in other Lokayata works, the chapter mentions a work called Lion That Devours Principles by the 8th century author Sri Jaya Sri Bhatta. It'd be neat to see if these are translated these days. It'd be sort of curious to see what do these texts talk about? And can I ask, in. what is the yeah. karmic result of God's teaching people things that should send them to hell? Is that why the gods then fall to hell at the end of their... Oh, but a boom <laughs> but a boom yeah. Maybe... That work, sorry, this work, which holds the radical position that there are no sources of valid knowledge, no sources, is identified as the Lokayata text in the chapter, a claim that is questioned by some scholars. Bada boom, bada bing, bada boom. Who was that guy, that comedian, right? 
from uh, New Jersey. After dealing with the various names and divisions, the chapter turns to the tenets, all of which are based on the central claim that the body, the sense faculties, and the mind derive from the four elements of earth, water, fire, wind, and therefore cease at death. There's no causation, there's no creator deity. Things are produced naturally from themselves without dependent on cause and conditions. They famously asked, who made peace round? Who sharpened thorns? Who painted the colors on the, on the tail of the peacock? I love those questions. For Lokayata, there's only one form of valid knowledge, direct perception, inference is fallacious. The only causation that they concede is that which can be directly observed, such as a sprout growing from a seed. Their rejection of karmic retribution is based on the observation confirmed even by those who claim to have the ability to see former lives that the greedy and wicked are often seen to thrive, while the generous and good are often seen to suffer. Isn't that a fact, right? I mean, like, look at our world. So where's karma in that case? Other earlier lifetimes, or, you know, that's why they say only the Buddha can actually see the whole... Um... That's a handy excuse, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Just looking too short-term, right? Yeah, it's an interesting topic, though. Good topic. In the last thing, though, when they say there's no causation, but in the prior sentence, it said that the the body and faculties and everything derive from the four elements. Is that not some form of causation? That is an oddly contradictory statement. And I think what they're getting at is that there's no karmic uh, causation in the sense of karma being a psychological factor. But okay, so I don't they're not know. denying that arising in, uh, from one thing to another is a form of causality. It, yeah, it seems that way. I mean, I don't know the details of it, but, uh, you know, like a seed to a sprout, that's, that's sort of causation in normal world things so it, it's I get, it sounds like this might have just been poorly written maybe because yeah it, it, it mentions there's no causation and thus no creator deity so i think what they're doing is mistakenly sort of conflating causation and creator deities which doesn't For, first cause sort of thing yeah. yeah maybe that's the problem is that yeah. they're basically denying creator deity is one thing but denying causation is a different thing Maybe we'll check that. You and I, we should look into the chapter and see if they explain it. Because otherwise, we're skipping that chapter. Sure. Oh, uh, my God. See. It just, my gut with this is they, they seem to be trying to build up. Like, we stopped and signed. They didn't have, first of all, Darwin's species, right? Origin of species and survival right. of the fittest. Yeah. But they're trying to build up, it sounds like, structures from matter all the way to human emo explaining human emotional be- and behavior like why there was probably genocide back then too right the kings sure. would probably and it's like why do people behave like this mm-hmm. and they're trying to they might be trying to build up that from the matter to the psycho psychophysical structures and trying to build up a structure like that and then they append it to gods as a source I mean, that's what we do. In, anyway, it's just... But in this case, they're insane. the ones that deny the God as the source. You two yeah. are assigned to research this <laughs> <laughs> by reading that chapter and seeing seeing what comes of it. Uh, okay, so where are we? Oh, let's see. Okay, so... 
all of the no's, there is no effective giving, there is no sacrifice, there is no blah, 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 blah. Yeah, thus they conclude there is no effective giving, no sacrifice, no fire ritual, no good conduct, there is no bad conduct. What then is one to do? The chapter cites as the Lokaya to text that advises, beautiful one, live well and eat. The supreme body, once gone, will not arise. The body is just a collection. Once destroyed and gone, it will not return. The chapter goes on to describe Lokaya to is often mocking refutation of many religious practices if it makes no sense to give provisions for a traveler long after they have departed why would one make offerings to the dead if uh, the dead depart to another world why do they not return to their home and their loved ones if a vedic priest believes that the cow that he kills during a fire sacrifice will be reborn in heaven why doesn't he kill his father I love that one. <laughs> That's what the Muslims, they take literally, right? They, they kill people to, to liberate them. But they don't kill each other to do it, interestingly. You, anyway, thus they conclude, therefore, these ritual works for the dead performed by Brahmins here are just their means of livelihood. They are nothing more than that. In a critique more pertinent to Buddhism, they deny the existence of enlightened beings because they deny the existence of a series of lives, of the series of lives required for the attainment of that state. There's the assumption that it takes more than one lifetime. In their own version of a bird and the hand is worth two in the bush, they advise a pigeon of today is better than a peacock of tomorrow. A doubtless copper coin is better than a doubtful gold coin and that's uh, was, so then the remainder of the reading was on uh, 87 to 97 where the compendium committee goes over the non-buddhist schools so <clears throat> that starts in section called part one of the book for you digitoids non-buddhist schools of tenants part one non-buddhist schools of tenants and in that, the first section is chapter two, the overview of the non-Buddhist schools and tenets, which for paper people is on 87, page 87, although it has no number on that actual page. You have to infer that page number by looking at the subsequent page with your eyes, your visual sense faculty. How's that for practicality? <laughs> is that a valid means of knowledge or what? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I guess. So first we have, uh, for example, the chapters on the Vinaya. So it, it's interesting, in the Vinaya, you know, you think Vinaya is like rules for monks, but Vinaya has all this other stuff in it, like uh, about like history and the different schools and philosophies. It's, it's, it's an odd collection of text. Uh, it goes through the six logicians, so it lists all these culprits. And then skipping that, there's a list of 18 Tirtaka teachers, non-Buddhist teachers. And uh, let's see, skipping ahead, we don't have much time, so just like dipping in on anything interesting here. So let's see. Uh, there's the second quote from the chapters on the Vinaya, and then there's... Uh, a paragraph after that, starting with giving does not exist, etc. And then the next paragraph, also the Brahma's Net Sutra. So there's the sutra in the early uh, Tripitaka collection. 
called Brahma's net that uh, goes that has this idea of there being 62 wrong views. Oh, monks, some learned wanderers and Brahmins speculated the past about the past and have delineated views about the past. They expand the discusses some speculate about the future. And all of these are based on the 62 views. There's no more than that. <laughs> so the famous 62 views and how you break down the 62 views, views is slightly interesting. Um, Let's see, Bhava Vika's blaze of reasoning said, what are the 62 views? There are 18 Tirtakas who speculate about the past, four among them eternalists, four partial eternalists, four say the self and the world are finite and infinite, four are equivocators, the eel wrigglers. <laughs> Two say they arise without a cause. I love that, that's like a, a, a type of person as equivocators. I want to be an equivocator when I grow up. <laughs> you have to be like very skilled to be an equivocator. Like you can't be pinned down as like agreeing with one thing or another, I guess. It's very slippery. Um, two say they rise without a cause, thus they're 18. They're 44 who speculate about the future. It's much more popular to speculate about the future than the past. 16 of them say there's a perception after death. Eight say there is no perception after death. Eight say the perception is neither existent nor non-existent after death, presumably. Five say there is nirvana in this lifetime. Seven are annihilationists. Sort of weird collection of views. It's not like what you would have imagined. Sorry. Not getting enough sleep at night, huh? It, it's a little bit hard to pin down what are the actual 62 views. Uh, but 44 and 18 we know make 16, so we got it in that way. Uh, so skipping a paragraph, there are four views of the partial eternalists, for example. Someone in the retinue of the Buddha, sorry, someone in the retinue of Brahma dies and is born as a human. He achieves concentration and solitude and attains supersensory knowledge, seeing that the Brahma, seeing that the great Brahma has not died, seen with that supersensory knowledge that Brahma has not died, he thinks Brahma is eternal and the other gods are not. Or second person, the great Brahma, seeing that the great elements are not eternal, but that the mind does not cease, says that the elements are not eternal, but the mind is eternal. Or thirdly, a god in the desire realm is seduced by play. Jeez. <laughs> That's an unusual. And through the force of play, his mindfulness uh, and introspection, two main qualities of meditation, deteriorate. And that person dies and is reborn as a human where he achieves supersensory knowledge, seen with vision that his former companions did not die. He thinks that the gods seduced by play are not eternal, while those who are not seduced by play are eternal. So that's the view of both not and yes, eternal. The god whose mind is agitated for that reason is reborn as a human. It has the same idea that agitators are uh, not eternal. Not quite what you would think about, like, what are the views of the 62? It's like, 
it's not like sort of philosophical particularly uh, let's see the four next part four views of those who say that the world does and does not have an end come about when non-buddhist species with supersensory knowledge wish to investigate whether the world has an end uh, when they remember the aeon of destruction the perception of an end arises presumably presumably the uh, in the age of aeon of destruction everything ends <laughs> when they remember the aeon of formation the perception that there is no end arises in the aeon of formation nothing ever gets destroyed it's just created according to these cosmologies when they wish to investigate the limit of the physical universe and do not see beyond the avici hell below and the fourth concentration or absorption above <clears throat> the perception of a vertical limit to the universe arises interesting how they have like a spatial quality to the universe of like up and down when they do not see a horizontal limit beyond anything the perception of no horizontal limit arises four views of the equivocators um, when asked uh, whether the effects of virtuous, non-virtuous actions, some think if I answer they exist, I'd be lying. I don't know it through direct perception. If I answer they don't exist, those with supersensory knowledge would expose my fault. So they equivocate <laughs> with various words. Anyway, I skipped a little section on the uh, at the beginning of this where they're going through the 62 views, which was the bottom of 88 for paper people, and it's right after the blaze of reasoning, quote, few digitoids if you go back a few paragraphs just very briefly the 62 views are identified in many texts here they're described in some detail based on the extensive description the blazer reasoning first the four views of the eternalists are those of non-buddhist meditators those with dull faculties capable of remembering only 20 aeons of rebirths with their supersensory knowledge of former lives and then there's those with middling faculties who remember only 40 aeons and those with sharper remember 80 aeons and those with supernatural ability of the divine eye that remember i don't know all of them would there be all would there be an all of them if there was no beginning it's a good question okay then going back to where we were it just goes on with these sort of bizarre Way, ways of uh, characterizing these views. Um, but skipping a few paragraphs, see if you can find a paragraph that starts for paper people, it's the middle of 90. And uh, so it's after the equivocators, it's after the proponents of causelessness, and then it's because all 18 views above are based on speculation, skipping that. Among this, the 44 views that speculate about the future, 16 are views of those who say that there is perception after death. Four are the views that the perceiving self is physical and to say otherwise deluded or the physical self is not physical the perceiving self is both and the perceiving self is neither four views that say the perceiving self has an end the perceiving self is endless the perceiving self is both the perceiving self is neither four the views that the perceiving self is pleasurable painful both neither for the views that the perceiving self is one and the perceiving self is many and so forth again just like very weird way of characterizing views um...
anyway, uh, we're out of time, and uh, th there's not a lot left of uh, great interest in this summary of the non-Buddhist schools above and beyond what we already went through by virtue of uh, Donna Lopez's presentation. So I think uh, we'll skip, and we'll just begin with the Buddhist schools next week. Any objection? All in favor, say aye. <laughs> All in disagreement, say nay. The eyes have it. So be I it. have one one more question. This is I've been <laughs> grappling with this a lot. It's like why are they presenting all these non-Buddhist schools? Mm. And from a scholastic perspective, technically, was Buddha Buddha himself a Buddhist, or was he based was he fully trained in all these Vedic schools? As a result, the Buddhist tenets are actually the foundation of them as all the non-Buddhist tenets. And that's why they they pains, go through painstaking detail. That's an I interesting mean, idea. Yeah, I mean, like think for example, Einstein wasn't a relativist, right? He, right. he was a classical physicist, and he extended classical physics. But all of his training was in classical physics. In a similar way, wasn't Siddhartha's all of his training in the classical Vedas? For sure, yeah. So yeah, this. The... So really, there's is there insight into Buddhist philosophy in the non-Buddhist tenets? There is certainly some, that, and that's why they go through them in in such detail in the in this tradition, is because yeah, there's it, it helps elucidate what the Buddhist views are by virtue of uh, comparison and uh, you know similarity and dissimilarity distinction as well as similarity uh, and, and it refines your understanding of the buddhist tenets to do that in that process but uh, clearly the buddha derived most all of his teachings most of his teachings if not like all of his teachings from other traditions and then he tweaked them or emphasized things differently in one way or another like the four noble truths appear in the in the upanishads and you know he he built on the scheme of rebirths samsara is the stream of rebirths and there is the possibility of liberation and enlightenment and the four uh immeasurable virtuous qualities those are in the upanishads also so uh, much of what he took is of what he taught was in that tradition and and then in the early texts like uh, dhammapada you see talks about the brahman the true brahman because the Brahmin were the priest class, and he was critical of the priest class for being attached to ritual. And the early Buddhists were adamantly against ritual, that rituals were terrible. You know, they would sacrifice animals and sometimes people, I guess. And it was just ridiculous. And so he was uh, adamantly against ritual and sacrifices being a total waste of time and worse, you know, being like a negative non-society that people thought by doing something like that, it would actually produce this or that and, and lead to different results. So uh, he, he would constantly uh, critique those other traditions and say that the true Brahmin is one who purifies their own mind 
and is uh, you know kind and loving and compassionate and so forth and so on and is that also why in some cases like when vajrayana sort of really brought back a lot of that kind of ritualistic stuff that there was reaction against it too yeah exactly the uh, the theravadans think that vajrayana is a is an abomination they think it's pure hinduism uh, so you know it's interesting what exists in the common in the world these days the current world where you have uh, congregations or uh, gatherings of the different schools together and you know basically the Theravans they're looking at all the all the Tibetans and all the Vajrayanas as like not real Buddhists and uh, they don't say it but <laughs> Uh, at least in the old the old school Theravans, you know, obviously the younger ones and the Western ones, obviously, many of them have become students of Tibetan teachers, you know, like the founders of IMS, almost all of them are students of Tsogni Rinpoche. So it's very ironic. But yeah, the, the Theravans, you know, we'll see that in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, tenets of like you know disparaging the Mahayana, not accepting the Mahayana uh, sutras as being valid teachings of the Buddha, and that's where you know we. I, I think I repeated this phrase from Atisha, where he comes to Tibet and finds this rampant sectarianism, and he says, um, "When you understand that all the different tenets of all the different schools are simply precepts for practice." that are applicable at different stages of the path and in different situations, then you will not um, encounter the, or you will not uh, perform the greatest downfall of all, which is criticizing any of the Buddha's teachings as invalid. You know, because that's what they do. They like, the, that's the worst um, version of the tenant system is saying, you know, oh, your tenant system is not real Buddhism. It's not, you know, as good as mine. And they put it down, and, and that's terrible. You know, the the tenant, the hierarchy of the tenant systems is not to put down the lower schools for the higher schools. Is that part of the not seeing the thing of, of seeing your own view as supreme? Yeah, that's right. That's what. That's exactly right. Not seeing your own view as supreme, and not seeing any particular thing as being universally productive of enlightenment, which was also that was primarily that. You know, these are the wrong views. When you go through the six root kleshas, the sixth one is view, and view breaks down into five types. And one of them is what Cynthia just said, not seeing your own view as supreme. And the other one is not seeing any particular activity or view or doctrine as being um, um, liberating, like universally liberating. And, you know, that goes from the, uh, gross things like assuming a certain posture or sitting in surrounded by four fires. You know, that's it's directed at that, at the, the uh, Jain's idea of, you know, sitting between fires is going to purify and lead to liberation. And the Buddhists are like, that's not going to do it for everybody. And you know, that's absurd. And standing on one foot or on your head and letting your hair grow and not wearing clothes or, you know, eating this or that, none of that's going to produce enlightenment. Well, isn't there a distinction between whether it will or whether it will do it for everybody? 
there there is it's it's well whether it will do for everybody but so it's a, a question of not denying the full range of skillful means as being relevant that it's sort of saying okay this worked for me therefore it's 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 overtly saying it's not going to work for everybody you can't generalize that it's going to work for everybody. But there's also this subtle implication that, well, maybe that's not what really worked, but there was something else. The the skillful means was the jumping off point for you actually purifying your defilements and overcoming the obstructions to enlightenment. Which is the and and so are you, was it talking more about specific kind of activities as opposed to, I mean, purifying defilements could be viewed as a skillful means too. But is that they're not talking about it as broadly as that? They're more talking about the sort of specific, specific activities. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Just, um, just out of curious, sorry, I, I, this is like been grappling. I'm trying to draw an analogy with the way we're trained in the West. Mm. You know, you go to college, say you specialize in something, say in, in biology or something. You know, you get your high school training and it's very trivial. It's very. Um, yeah. Loose. And as you go up, you refine your your studies. Mm. So, you know, first they teach you general biology. Then they teach you a little bit about chemistry. Then they go into biochemistry, then molecular cell biology. And in each level, you're getting this further and further refinement uh, into modern times. So it's done historically, too, like you learn about Mendelian genetics, you know, and you move up to modern times. And... And that's the one side. So, so in a sense, I guess what I'm, I'm questioning here is this the same thing with the tenant system as they're layering complexity. And, and the second thing is on in terms of not putting a thing, I think there's an ethical issue where mass genocide is committed in the name of religion. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's those two dimensions of it. So I was just curious if, if that's sort of what they're trying to do here with the with the Nalanda tradition, I guess it's an analogy, like in physics, this is another, you study classical physics, we know that's wrong, okay, but you're taught it because it's very practical and actually it isn't wrong within a realm of application. You Mm -hmm. could do most of engineering with classical physics, but we know it's wrong because of quantum mechanics. So, you know, so so it's wrong and right at the same time. And, and the question is, is there an analogy with the Buddhist tenant system? And I'm asking you because you guys have vast more experience in this than I do. The answer is yes. And what, what do you think it would be? Well, I, I would think you go from the, the classical non-Buddhist tenants and you move all the way up to the Nagarjunas and, and Shantakirtis you know, that layering of the Prasangika systems where they become refinements of, of the philosophy along the way. And, yeah. and, that, and there is a notion of self. If you're being chased by a tiger, you better think about yourself. Are you going to die, right? There's the, the two truths aspect. And, and I'm sure Buddha didn't deny that. That's correct. He talked about this. He used the word self a lot. So that's one of the major issues is like, is like, what is, what is the relative self? And, and how do we refer to the relative self? But the other issue you're raising is, is that the schools are viewed as 
uh, representation that an individual practitioner goes through in their path when they come to Buddhism. They initially understand things in a very crude and, and clunky way, similar to the Vibhashikas. And then they, they gradually refine their understanding through meditation practice and study and understand the subtlety, subtlety of the, the Sautrantikas and so on. So the, the progression of the tenet systems is a map for the progression of the individual. And so they say the ontology recapitulates the fun, fun uh, the, um, what is something? <laughs> ontology recapitulates uh, phonology. What phenomenology. Phenomenology, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so the development of the schools maps the progression of the individual on the path, regardless of, you know, initially we become, you enter into a Tibetan tradition, and so, yeah, you're a prasangika. But you don't really know what that means. You know, you, you necessarily start with a very literal version of the Dharma and the world and so forth, and gradually that gets refined. And you go, th and you basically go through the similar stages of progression as the tenant systems do of Sautrantika, and then Chitta Mantra, and then the two types of of Madhyamaka. So Thank that's you. the that's the I, idea, yeah. and that's important. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, that came up in the, the first two volumes too with the the mm -hmm. partless particles, <laughs> because there's a similar notion in chemistry. We talk about electrons and protons. Yeah. And you could do all of your chemical engineering with that, but we know by quantum mechanics that's not valid. Isn't that cool? I love that. Yeah, you can. So you know, you it's have the way to things build. work on a certain level. Yeah, yeah, and it is very practical. It's an approximation, right? Mm -hmm. So I just didn't know if there, I, as I've been reading these volumes, there's there's these analogies that have been coming up, mm -hmm. and I've been struggling with them, and that's why I'm inquiring, but. It's yeah. probably too much time. I'm I'm vocalizing too much. I'll I'll drop off here. I know we're yeah. done. Yeah, the analogies are very helpful. Yeah. And going back to your earlier thing, I remembered while we were talking that uh, I think the best one is uh, cutting through appearances, the best Galupa tenant presentation. And the other one that I liked so much, Buddhist philosophy, I like because it, the introduction by Kozort has such helpful explanations of basic uh, basic concepts that are used in the tenant systems, like what is a person, what is the world, what is ignorance, what is enlightenment, which is like priceless. It's like those are all like rarely defined and and explained, but they're sort of like assumed that you have an understanding of those. And so that whole introduction in Buddhist philosophy is immensely helpful. The only thing he left out is what is a thing. He should have had in there, but he 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 claimed. I I sp I met him at a conference and spoke to him about that. And he was like, "Well, it's sort of spread out in various other parts of the introduction." Anyway, thank you, Dean, for that. That's very interesting. Thank you all for this, and uh, we'll go into dive into the Buddhist systems uh, next week. Conclude with our and any final comments. Anyone else? Let's conclude with our dedication. By this merit, may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. 
by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy a profound, brilliant glory. Good night, thank you, take care, see you soon.